Welcome to the Manager Material Podcast. We're going to chat about all the things that make you manager material. I'm your host, Erin Jackson. If you're already a Manager Material member, make sure to check out the podcast paper section in the community for the guide on this episode. Let's dive in. Welcome back to the Manager Material Podcast. Today we are talking to Justin Jackson, who is a Chief Revenue Officer, and he spent the majority of his career in the tech industry. I'm really excited for you to hear his career journey and all the things he's learned being a manager of people for an extended part of his career. He's also my better half. Welcome. So will you start us out and just walk us through a little bit about you and your background? Tell us about Justin, not career stuff, just who Justin is. Sure. So uh, I grew up in Houston, Texas. Well, my father was an attorney. My mom was a preschool teacher. Uh, One sibling, Rebecca. Uh, who is also now an attorney. Uh, I started going down the attorney route, um, but ultimately there was a toga party the night before the LSAT, so didn't do so great and decided maybe that wasn't meant for me. So um, I went to Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas, where I studied psychology. I got my master's in business administration from the University of Texas, uh, and I took the evening route while I was working at Dell. Live here in Dripping Springs with my better half. Uh, three kids, uh, Ian, who's 21 years old, Nicholas, 18, and Mackenzie is 16. So it was a big year at our at our house. So before we get into your, your career, MBA, let's talk about that for a second, because you got your MBA. How long had you been in the workforce before you got your MBA? And do you feel like it was worth that investment? Yeah, so I was in the workforce probably two years. Uh, I had had some time managing a restaurant, uh, went into sales at Dell, and Dell had one of those programs where they were funding, um, I don't know, $3,000 per calendar year uh, for an MBA uh, or advanced education. So um, I had, at that point, kind of a what I thought was a good plan for my career, where I would in, invest time in larger companies, learn, uh, and ultimately go the startup route. Um, which we can certainly, you know, talk about the merits of, of that. But um, I, I thought um, it just gives you a lot of credibility um, and it teaches you a lot of situations. And so, so much of what we learn is through, through stories. And that turned out to be true, listening to classmates who were also employed in various leadership positions in various industries, sharing, you know, putting what we were learning in context and uh, really having it land in, in the classroom. And so, I think it's been very, very valuable uh, for me long term. I think um, you have to weigh the the price of the education and the price of that time away from home um, with what you get out of it. But for me, it's it's been it's been a great thing. Can you walk us through the beginning of your management journey, where that started, and how it led you to the rest of your career? Yeah, so I was in uh, restaurant management. That was my first management role ever. And at some point, I just realized this isn't this isn't kind of all I can be, all I can do. And so I had friends at Dell, uh, jumped into uh, an interview and started selling home computers at the time. And so for me, my journey is individual contributor in the home space at Dell, then over into the corporate space, selling to companies and qualifying them for kind of bigger relationships at Dell. Um, at one point I took a sidestep at the behest of a mentor who said it's easier to get that experience earlier in your career than later. And so I jumped into a very technical role, supporting a team of 10 that was managed by somebody else as the technical support advisor, technical uh, sales advisor, um, before ultimately going into a management role. And, and from there it was, you know, manager role, sidestep into a heavy analytics role, were special projects for one of our VPs, and then uh, back into regional sales management over multiple locations uh, before leaving Dell and kind of continuing my career growth from there. Being a, going from a sales individual contributor to a manager, I've seen a lot where sometimes the best salesperson doesn't make the best sales manager. What was that shift like going from an IC salesperson who's sitting there just closing deals, you have a quota that you're focusing on, you're just focusing on yourself to moving into a management role where the the winning is about the team and less about you at that point. Yeah, I think it's really tough um, because when you're in sales, it it is about winning and you do want to show off and you do want to 
um, you know, be at the top of those charts month after month. You do want to have the biggest paycheck. You do want to hit the highest quota. And so when you all of a sudden shift into a management role where you're responsible for the well-being and the performance of others, your natural inclination, un unless you're trained otherwise, is to continue showing your skills and performing. And what you really need to do is get the best out of the people that that report to you, that you ultimately serve and support. And so for me, um, I would say it was a pretty typical jump, fail, figure it out um, experience. So I one day uh, was an individual contributor, uh, interview popped up. I said, here's what I can do. Here's my philosophy. Here's how I want to manage a team and why I want to manage a team. Got the role, jumped into managing what, what were my peers. And that's when all of the <laughs> failing and learning begins because there's a little bit of well, now I'm the boss, so I can tell you what to do. So there's a little bit of pride involved at, at times, which can can be very, very bad. Um, and then there's the realization that doesn't come right away that everybody doesn't do things the same way as you, and that's okay. There are Everybody has their own strengths. Everybody has their own way of performing. And while some of those will look the same as you, a lot of them will look different, and we should benefit and harness that and not try to force everybody into one way of doing things. And I kind of did the latter. I thought, here's how I was successful. Even if you're pretty successful, do it my way and you're going to win even more. Um, because I was pretty successful as an, as an individual contributor. I was the trip winner. I did, you know, realize that level of success, but jumping into management, it's a, it's a completely different story. So what you're talking about, you're philosophy of management and what you wanted to do as a leader, what was informing that? Was that, where did that come from? I think it may be, I might be overstating it to say I had a, a fancy philosophy or something really well, well honed at the time. Um, but I did have a point of view that uh, I wanted to, um, I wanted to be very data-driven. I wanted to, uh, regardless of, of where the successes came from, I wanted to be able to pinpoint it in the data uh, I was an Excel jockey at the time. I, I invested so much time in learning all the ins and outs of Excel and pulling access to the data and and pinging the um, IT and IS information systems teams to give me special access to the databases so I could have a different view of the data. And I thought, boy, if I could just take this and basically lecture the team on what's going on and, and how to be successful, well, then everything would just take off from there. So it, it was a bit of a philosophy in that it was, you know, focus on the data. Um, was it very data-driven at the time? Yes, in the sense of what data I was pulling. No, in the sense of like, I was reading, I pulled information from a number of people, and then I kind of put my own confidence in place to to say, this is the way I want to go about it. It was enough to get me the job, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But uh, ultimately, I think it was a good thing for me uh, to have those early experiences in the environment that that Dell had at the time. How old were you when you first became a manager of people? This is around 2001, so probably 25, 26 years old. If you were to go back to that point in time at Dell, what would you tell yourself then that you know now? I would say, um, number one, it's about the people. You mentioned it's about your team winning versus you winning. And I think that's the first big thing that I would that I would want to get across is that you know you have to have a completely different point of view now than you had in that seat as an individual contributor. The why behind the role I think was right, um, but I, I think it, it's, it's, it's worth re uh, repeating and reminding managers that you're doing this not to show off you, you're doing this so that you can make other individuals successful. You're there to remove roadblocks and barriers. So focus on those things when you're leading a team, it's about what are the roadblocks they're facing and they could be individual to each of them. And how do you go about removing those roadblocks? So I would try to accelerate that mental shift uh, quicker if I had a chance to go back and tap myself on the shoulder and <laughs> back in those days. When you became a manager, did you have anyone investing in your development that was higher up in the organization? Were there trainings? Like what was informing that growth as a manager early on for you? There wasn't anything formal. As time went on, uh, there were some uh, amazing mentors who said, 
we see the potential in you, but you're really screwing up right now. And that's the kind of nudge that you need sometimes as a, as a manager who thinks you have it uh, all figured out, that confidence can, can kind of lead you astray. And so while I was super confident, you know, I shouldn't have been about some things and I really needed to listen and stop and slow down and, and learn that, that patience, if you will. Can you think of a specific example of one of those times you're going off track and like feedback you got that you might have initially, you know, pride wise been like, no, that's not correct, but ultimately ended up being true. Yeah. In fact, it was about patience. Um, in particular, uh, there was a boss of mine named Ted, who was kind of the first one who really took a minute and sat down and said, you're going to get this right, but it's not right right now. And there's a, a book, it was the kind of the, the it thing at the time called FYI for your improvement. I actually have a copy around here. And he pulled the one out for patience. The situation at the time was that, as I mentioned, I had invested heavily in learning Excel and I was able to, you know, whip up reports and data pretty quickly uh, to share you know, with the team. But when I started managing others, I was expecting them to do it as well and say, here, here you go, here's what I want to see. But I wasn't investing the time in teaching them. I wasn't investing the time in sitting side by side and saying, hey, you're going to struggle with this. It's okay. I did too. Here's how you get through it. Here's the resources you need in order to be successful here. And so instead I would get frustrated and I would say, just, I'll do it. And I was actually taking on those tasks instead of focusing on roadblocks I could remove from them and teaching and training them. I was saying, basically, you're too slow, dummy. Let me do it for you. That was that didn't feel good to them, obviously, um, and it didn't help the organization scale because I wasn't teaching them anything. So I was I was basically failing at my core job as a manager and developing in the in in that team. And so I was very thankful to kind of get that nudge early on to get that advice. So you've gone you you move up to regional sales manager at Dell. What happens next career wise? So. For a while, I I managed managers, so I had a, you know six seven managers reporting to me. Each of them had a team, and um, I'm structuring everything from the weekly reports to how they're giving feedback and holding people accountable to performance management, all the typical blocking and tackling, if you will. And being what I've come to learn in in Strengths Finder as a, a maximizer and, and heavy and strategic. I started looking broader than my team. I started looking across the organization and I, and I realized uh, there's some opportunity here that we're not capturing. For example, um, we had two divisions that had grown to look very much alike. The original intention was one of them was an emerging business division. It was designed to focus and capture the dot-com era boom. And companies were making decisions very, very fast. We had to move a lot faster. And the other one, the relationship sales division was kind of the tried and true maintenance mode companies. Um, as the dot-com boom kind of ended and faded in 2003, call it, I don't know the exact year, but both kind of looked the same. And I thought, you know, we have a lot of good talent in one uh, that could be used in another. And, you know, basically if you, if you step back and you said, uh, the, the greater opportunity for Dell is to go after accounts that, that we're, we're only 15, 20% penetrated and we want the best people to do that. We had people in one division that had 80% penetration, but they were great hunters. And we had other people in that were, you know, the opposite, that they were in 20% account and they were really great relationship managers. And so I showed this with data and the divisional vice president said, well, what do you want to do to fix this? And, and so I laid out a plan that would take about six months to execute. And in a very, very short time, they said, why don't you lead it? And that means giving up your team will backfill your team. You'll report to the VP and, um, you know, run this. Um, and, do, and, and, and in reality, the role that I had to go do, the, the project that I was going to run, merging these two divisions and kind of reallocating resources, um, it relied on influencing not just the managers I was managing, but there were about 35 managers across three locations, Nashville, Oklahoma City, and Round Rock. So I needed to go communicate, influence all of them, and kind of keep my peer regional sales managers in the loop because this had implications for quota coverage. It had implications for who reports to who, the account sets, all, all of the rest. We could probably spend a whole podcast just talking about that one project and all the ins and outs that go into that. But I want to go back to 
you're a manager of individual contributors, manager of managers. That's a big difference, the two of those. What was kind of the shock for you or what were the learnings for you going from, okay, I've got just this small group of people reporting to me and now I've got, I mean, you had a much bigger downline at that point if you had manager of managers. Yeah, so it went from managing a team of 10 as a manager and um, now I have six or seven managers, each with 10. So 70, 75 people in the organization. The, the biggest shift for me was like, how do you communicate effectively through managers and when do you address the organization directly? And that may sound like kind of a trivial thing at times, but you don't want to steal the thunder from your managers. You need them to be empowered and successful to lead their teams because they have very direct uh, relationships with those teams. But at some time, at some point, you you have a message that you want to get to the the whole organization. So I think that was a big learning. And, and early on, of course, as you can imagine, because I'm telling the story as a learning, I got feedback that was like, hey, um, <laughs> maybe let us tell that story from time to time and not jump over us and and kind of take that uh, control. I feel like I solved that pretty quickly, but it, it's certainly a, an, an early learning. Yeah, I have a client and this person is a manager, managers in their downline. One of the pieces of feedback they gave me is this manager would come out and just announce things to their team without them being in the loop on it. And they're like, um, can we like be part of the huddle before you announce to our teams? I think it's a, a fairly common mistake. You don't realize the implications early on when you become a manager of managers because you're so used to that initial, a direct relationship with the, the individual contributors. Yeah. And you're there to empower your managers, just like when you're a manager, you're there to empower your team. And so that framework that that constantly changes as you move up in the organization. You said something that's important where so many managers have good intentions. And that's where I think managers get themselves in, into trouble is they they think and rely on, well, I've got good intentions. What what I believe is one thing, but how you're coming across to everyone could be totally different. And that's where if you were to, when you poll managers and over 90% of them think they're doing a great job, but the data actually shows that that's way far off. It's closer to, you know, 30 something percent of managers are actually doing it, the right things. And that's a pretty big gap. Yeah. I mean, thinking about engagement, I think that's what you're talking about, right? The Gallup engagement um, mm -hmm. kind of survey. Um, I mean, it's about clear expectations and resources and it's always like anything. It sounds easy. Like, yeah, I mean, everybody knows clear expectations and everybody's got the resources they need, but it's not usually that clear. And in fact, almost 70% of managers don't get that right. And they don't go to work going, you know, I, I really don't care. They have good intentions. They want their people to succeed, but companies don't invest as heavily as they should in training those managers, number one. And as I have always told my teams, it's a two-way street. And 50% of the time, you need to be investing in yourself. In, in fact, there was a all hands we were at at Dell years and years ago. And Dell was doing quite well. This was probably 2003. And our VP stood up and was giving the results. And this individual in, in the Q&A section said, Dell's obviously doing quite well. We're the ones driving this. What's Dell going to do to um, share the wealth a little bit, give a little piece back to the team? And I'll never forget this. One of the things he said is like, well, let me ask you, you know, Dell has been investing in marketing, new products, new team members, new trainings. Dell has been investing in surveys of our customers, customer councils, travel. He went on and on. He said, what have you done to invest in yourself to keep up with the growth of Dell? And the room was silent. And the point was well taken. I mean, if you're just going to sit around and watch the company succeed and invest behind the scenes in a number of things, which you can see if you pay attention, and then you're going to say, well, give me a little piece of that. Uh, at some point, somebody's going to ask, what are you doing to invest in yourself? And it's critical to at least match the company uh, in, in their investment in themselves and their investment in you. They, when I talk to managers and we talk about development, that conversation, a lot of them will come back and say, you know, eight of 10 or five of seven want to be part of this conversation. And I've got a couple of people or one person that just doesn't care, doesn't want to be part of this conversation at all. Uh, what do you say to those managers who have a few people that aren't really invested in their own development? Well, I, I would say 
you're either growing or you're dying. And that sounds a little extreme, but in the tech world, if you're not growing, you're not investing in yourself, you're not learning what's changing and how to handle it and what are the new trends, which the company can only give you so much. Even the best company that invests in their people can only give you so much. And I would say that number is probably 50%. The other 50% has to come from you, whether it's your willingness to listen or your inventiveness. Like where, where are you going to get that influence from? Where are you going to go seek that improvement? If you're not willing to, to make that investment, the company is going to pass you up. And maybe that's okay. Maybe you go through a season of life where you don't need all that pressure, but just know that nobody's doing that to you. If you choose not to invest in yourself and grow, you're actually choosing to let the company pass you by. A lot of people, I think, feel like, oh, that development means I'm trying to move to a different position. But in some cases, it's just you have to keep up with the pace of the growth of the organization, even in your current role. Because if you've got a, if you're in this role today and the company is making 200 million and scales to 700 million or, or above a billion, what is needed from you in this role today might be totally different. That's absolutely true. And nowhere in my career was that more true than at Amazon. Um, so around 2009, uh, I got a call from a recruiter. They said, hey, we've got this role in Amazon. I said, I'm never moving to Seattle. I was invited to Seattle to just kind of check it out. Hey, you might make some new connections, fell in love with the place. And and long story short, I got a role as a senior manager in the Amazon's marketplace. Well, I quickly learned that at Amazon, you know, the company needed you to improve so that they could just assign you to a bigger role. So Amazon really was a huge catapult for you in your career. And I know Amazon has gotten a bad rap a lot in the press for kind of churning and burning their people. But there's also benefit to that for some people. You learn a lot in a very short period of time. Talk us through your Amazon journey. Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you an overview first. So I, I showed up at Amazon. I was leading a team of two people, Amazon Web Store. And um, you know the, the whole task was like, we're, we're getting close to relaunching this thing because they had a fumbled launch a few years before. Um, you need to build your team. We've allocated seven heads to this effort. You got to go hire the other five and um, get it up and running. And so I did that quite well, enjoyed it. Uh, Amazon was the first place that I realized that <clears throat> you must bring a point of view. Like you're not there to do, and, and a lot of managers, I think, you know, think about their role as um, there's a playbook somewhere. I just got to find it. There's a set of tasks I got to accomplish. I just have to do them. And as long as I do them pretty well and fly under the radar, I, you know, somebody at some point will say, you're ready for the next thing. But it's not really that way. And so I brought a point of view as to, you know, certainly from my background, and, and that's good to draw on things that you've learned in the past from similar roles. Um, but I also said, look, I'm not getting the demand generation, the marketing I need. So I would like to actually uh, take one of my seven heads and I'm going to make them a marketing head. And that was kind of crazy at the time because marketing had a home. <laughs> there were leaders of marketing. And they were prioritizing other things. I had a different opinion, obviously, that we needed to prioritize this. And, you know, it's not obvious to a lot of managers that they can make a pitch and change the way their organization is structured. And so I think that was a little bit, it came a little bit from my confidence. Um, it also came from good mentorship that's told me time and time again, if something isn't the way you want it, change it. Don't complain until it changes. You make the recommendation as to what you want uh, changed. So I did that. And my VP at the time, Adrian, said, um, good ownership. You know, at Amazon, they're big on the leadership principles. And this one was ownership. Like, it's your problem to solve until somebody else comes along and says, no, I'll solve it. And here's how. And so given that it was a problem and I needed to solve it, I said, I'm going to flip the head. It's going to cost about the same, but I'm going to put them in marketing. It then was on my shoulders to make it successful. And so it was little things like that that kind of earn you credibility at Amazon to you know, you're not going to wait for somebody to give you direction, to, to tell you where to go, to tell you what's next, to ask you every nth degree question, to finally pull out of you a point of view. You need to, you need to bring it. You need to come with a point of view. And so that was rewarded at Amazon and that kind of helped shape me and my growth uh, moving on. So to quickly run through it, Amazon Web Store, I took on Amazon Payments. The thing about payments at the time was the product wasn't really a right fit for the market we were trying to serve. And so with data, customer quotes, customer visits, and ultimately taking an SVP 
on a plane to California to meet with a customer with me to prove this product doesn't meet their needs where we're targeting. So we either got to change our targeting or we have to change the product. And we changed the product. We shut it down for six months and changed the product. Uh, so I worked closely with the product team to funnel the feedback there and design that product. And then was given several other tasks. So go launch Amazon Wine. Uh, we could spend hours on, on that. Then sports and entertainment collectibles, launch Amazon Art. And then I jumped to a different division, Amazon Local, which was a Groupon living social competitor at the time, uh, launched the central region. And, and the, the, the thing about that move is I moved to Dallas and I was a bar raiser at Amazon. And so a bar raiser is responsible for kind of the um, interview process, the overall interview process and integrity at, at Amazon. So I had moved to um, help bar raise for the region um, as well as lead the central team. And then at a certain point, they said, okay, great job there. I want you to move back to Seattle and take on the consumables organization, which I didn't know at the time didn't make sense to me to move back to, to Seattle. And so uh, I, I flew back and forth every week for a period of time, but ultimately yielded the headcount back to my VP who later hired me at, at Uber. So I'll, I'll pause there, but Amazon was a absolutely incredibly influential in my, uh, in my growth. So it sounds like you had quite a few lateral moves. You weren't just trying to climb a straight up ladder. You were moving laterally. Were you the same level at all in all of those positions? I had one level bump during that six years, but nothing ever felt lateral at Amazon. And, and kind of the key there is, are you learning something? Are you challenged? Um, are you a little bit in over your head at times? And as long as the answer is always yes, and you're kind of pushing and learning and they're investing in you, which Amazon did a great job uh, at meeting your investment in yourself uh, in the company, um, then, then you know, life was good. So um, yes, it was, it was absolutely lateral, but I, it, it was always fun because I was always learning something new. I think young managers are afraid, just people in general in their career are afraid of what is on paper looks lateral, but it, what you're saying is ultimately, if you're experiencing something new, you should be learning and growing and you're expanding your experience sets to pull from in the future. It doesn't always have to be, I have to move up a tier. I have to move up a tier in order to expand my career and build my career up. Right. Right. The, the way I, the way I think about it is, you know, where's my impact and am I, Am I maximizing what I believe my impact to an organization um, can be? So let's talk about titles for a second, because a lot of people get scared with a title going back, you know, going from like a Volusion to an Amazon. Will you talk about why scope is much more impactful than the role itself, the title? Yeah. So you'll hear me talk about the why behind you do things, uh, why, why behind what you're doing all the time. And for me, um, you're you're constantly on this journey to improve yourself so that you can then improve others. And title is not a part of that. Um, if you're in a position where your title is the reason people are following you or listening to you, you're doing something wrong. So for me, I'm not going to say that your ego doesn't hurt just a tiny bit when Amazon calls and says, we've got the senior manager role and you go, but I'm a director now. Um, it does. But if you can overcome that and, and what you really realize is they're going to teach you something new, the scope of the role as they describe it, as the job description is there, as you interview for it, and ultimately as you realize it when you get there, the, the scope of that role is so much bigger and more challenging than what you're doing today, and you have people investing in you and teaching you more, then, then that's an absolute win. Title is absolutely secondary. Yeah, there's a lot of people who you can get great title growth going to smaller companies. But on the flip side, just because you have a title of director or VP, SVP, chief, even at a startup company or smaller smaller scope does not mean you are qualified for that same title at a company like an Amazon because it is because Amazon's notorious and, and Uber as well for having lower titles in comparison to, to scope to like a startup company. So Amazon's like super different in a, in a lot of ways, as you've talked about, what was different from a management standpoint from, you talked about the, have a point of view, but in the expectation of managing people, the sophistication around performance reviews, all of that stuff, what did you learn from a management standpoint? Did that accelerate your management journey at all? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the framework that Amazon uses is really, really sophisticated in, in this sense. There, there's 14, there were 14 leadership principles. I believe they've gone to 16. But at Amazon, if you think about the journey of any individual, including managers, it starts with the interview process. You're interviewing 
based in leadership principles. You have behavioral-based interviews. Tell me about a time when you did X, Y, and Z. Tell me about a time you faced this challenge. And the interview loop is set up such, uh, and, and obviously I did a lot of training as a bar raiser here. Um, it's set up such that like you have four or five people individually covering different competencies. And only one of them is really functional. Uh, somewhere usually in the in the reporting line that's hiring this role is like, can they actually do this job? The rest of it is all about the competencies uh, in the role. When you get hired at Amazon, after you're hired, after you've gone through that interview process, even in your first week, you'll hear about the leadership principles. You'll hear about, you know, are you diving deep? Do you have a bias for action? You'll get comments from your manager at the time. And it's very much in line with the competencies that you interviewed about. So you interview people based on competencies, you develop them based on competencies at Amazon, at Amazon. And then at the end of the year reviews and mid-year reviews, you review them based on those competencies. I think a lot of times, you know, in, in companies I've been at even since, you interview somebody based on a certain set of, of things, and then they get in, you give them feedback on a hodgepodge of things throughout the months. And then it comes to the mid-year and end-of-year performance reviews, and you dust off the company handbook, and you say, all right, these were our seven big principles or tenets or whatever you call them at that company. And you got to then force feedback that you're just now coming up with into those buckets that are in the company handbook. It's very, very backwards. At Amazon, it was very streamlined from interview through exit. Um, you know, If you have to terminate uh, somebody at Amazon, you have to explain which of the leadership principles did they fail on and, and what did we do to make sure that didn't happen? And so it's a very cohesive process. And so as a part of that, um, if you didn't take notes throughout the year on your team's performance, especially if you're managing managers, if you tried to wing it at the end of the year, it was obvious because it's very public, like all the same level people, not just from your org, but other orgs get together in a room. If you're going to give somebody an excellent rating or above average rating, you've got to explain why. And there's debates around, well, that sounds a lot like average because I've got somebody who did X, Y, and Z and I'm rating them average. And so it's it's very well grounded, um, but it's very meticulous on what you collect throughout the year. So whereas at a lot of companies, managers, unfortunately, kind of wing it throughout their one-on-ones throughout the months and quarters. And then at the end, they try to come up with how did this individual perform and why I want to give them this rating. You get recency bias and all the rest. At Amazon, that just wouldn't fly. You couldn't, you, you could not survive as a manager uh, there. So I saw the power of it, the benefit of it, but I also didn't have a choice. And so it became habit. And so that's why, you know, as far as the framework of managing even large organizations, Amazon was was, you know, irreplaceable in my experience. It sounds like they had that great framework, but there's also a high level of accountability. And that accountability, when it comes to the startup world, is is often something that comes later down the road. And people will say, oh, it's a startup mindset, it's a startup mindset. But in, but in all reality, that could easily be part of a startup mindset from the get-go. Having a performance coaching, having that accountability, having that the continuity for the people that you're hiring to bring on to your to your team and believe and buy into what you're trying to do. So you went from a very large organization, Dell, to a smaller, much smaller company, Fusion, back to a much bigger company, Amazon. Some of the people that I work with that they've only worked for one company, some of them 10 years or more at this one company. And some of those people are very afraid of leaving. There's this sense of safety at that one company. And from your perspective, does it make sense to move companies or stay at one company? Are there benefits to moving? And how would you, what would you tell them to break that fear to allow them to move on to something else? Well, I think that the, the thing that trumps everything is, are you learning? Are you challenged? Are you a little bit over your head at times? And is somebody investing in you to make you better? while you're facing those challenges. Um, and sometimes that might be you investing in yourself, an outside mentor or whatever, but are you in a, in a situation where you're growing? The, the fear is a real one because when you, like I left Dell and I, I could have gone and knocked on the door, uh, the cubicle at the time of a bunch of different VPs and directors. And it was a very familiar place. And you know, if I ever got something wrong or I made a mistake, there's this, you know, seven, eight year history of me doing things well. And it's like, okay, you can make a mistake because in eight years you didn't. The fear is you go to a new company and you make a mistake and everybody's like, why do we hire this guy? Um, and so that's a very real um, fear. And, and I think there's an approach you can take where, um, you know, number one, you make sure you go to companies that value 
risk-taking, that understand what mistakes you're likely to make, um, uh, that you're very clear in communicating what you're trying to accomplish and that this this may fail. And if it fails, it's going to fail fast. And here's how. Um, I don't think, you know, first of all, if you're not in a position where you're growing and you're challenged, like your two options are to move or to change the situation you're in. And assuming you've already tried to change the situation you're in, then your only option is to kind of make a change and, and go grow again. And so, yeah, I think I think you've got to make that call. Um, if the company has stopped investing in, in in you, they have stopped putting you in front of challenging positions, or if the company is kind of waning in and of itself, I think you got to make that tough call. There are two things with in watching you be a leader over the years that have really stood out to me. And one is that people f- continue to follow you from company to company. You are still in contact with people. Um, that's one thing that I'm super attracted to you about is the fact that you are you have really respected people to where they stay in contact with you and, and and value your opinion. And then the other is hearing and watching you come in and invest in people and kind of have turnaround stories, people that weren't doing well, that, that were maybe on the chopping block and then they wound up thriving. How, why are like, why do people love working for you? How are you able to turn people around so quickly? It's, it's really impressive. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. I, I, I would say that um, it's true because we've witnessed it, but I think this can be true of anybody. And for me, again, it starts with that mindset of like, you don't get anywhere without your team. I think the second important part of that mindset is if I were to paint leaders with um, a very unfair broad brush, I would say there's kind of two general uh, types. Um, those who want to build a machine and people who fit into that machine are great and people that you know try to fit in and don't get rid of them and hire somebody new. And that takes place in sales, unfortunately, more than, than anywhere else. Um, and then there's then there's the leaders where where I certainly fall, which is you've got to invest in people. Like you can hire people with good fundamentals. You can hire people that are willing to be curious and that are naturally curious and that want to learn uh, and that have learned other things and have been successful in things that they've tried. But then you throw them into your company. And the reason your company's not the same as every other company is you're doing something different. And so you've got to invest in them and train them. And my mentality has always been to invest in them and you have to teach them the ropes and teach them what you're looking for and teach them what winning looks like and set those clear expectations and make sure they have those resources. And when all those baselines are there and they're heavily engaged, then you can start putting them in growth um, positions. And what I mean by that is I like to invest in people where I understand where are they professionally? What level are they? Where are their gaps And then I think of stretch projects and I put them in these stretch projects. I expose them to things that are just above their current capabilities. And I only jump in, and this is a very important part of doing this. You only jump in if their actions and their approach is going to harm their reputation, their team, or their customers. So it's okay to flounder. It's okay to let people make mistakes that don't harm anybody else that they learn from because you know, I've learned from my own mistakes more than I've learned from anybody lecturing me on anything. Uh, and so if you can create that environment, first of all, hire the people, have the mindset to invest in them, and then create that stretch project or series of tre- stretch projects for them and not jump in and save them unless it's it meets those criteria, they're going to thrive and they're going to love you for it. And you can acknowledge that they're going to flounder at times. I can't tell you how many one-on-ones I've had where, you know, I've had somebody sitting across from me. I'm like, so how's it going? And they're like, I'm struggling if I'm honest. I'm like, good, let's talk about that. And they would say, you know, I just, I don't know if I should do this or that. And I say, well, where are you leaning? You know, a lot of managers will say, well, clearly you should do this. Don't give them the answer. Don't jump in, make them fight through it. Make them justify why they're leaning that way. Sometimes it's a, it's a very drawn out conversation where you say, well, where else could you get more input? What input do you think you're missing? It's very, very heavy on the questioning and they fight through it and they thank you for it. And they love the fact that when they think about you as their leader, they have these opportunities to grow. Uh, They have these opportunities where you didn't just do it all for them and give them a pat on the back when it went well, you actually helped them fight through it. And so people want to grow, especially if you're hiring the right ones. And and when people want to grow and you give them these opportunities, they want to follow you to the next place because they don't care where that is. They just want to work in that environment. Mm-hmm. When you found people that are struggling, what do you what do you find? What is usually the cause of them struggling, and how have you turned them around? Because I know a lot of people are like, 
quick to be like, all right, they're done, move, move them along. Yeah, I, I would say it's one, they've developed really bad habits over time and they've they've got this learned helplessness where they're struggling because they they never learned it or you know they haven't been exposed to it or the last time they were exposed to it somebody jumped in and saved them and so they never really learned it and so now they're struggling and they need somebody to encourage them through it now i should say at this point that doesn't mean everybody gets through it sometimes the the hard conversation at the end of two or three of these exercises is listen you might be in the wrong spot or you're best served over here in this role um but but more often than not, you invest in somebody. If you've hired right, you invest in, in, in you know, they'll grow uh, into that role. I would say the other, the other thing is, you know, maybe they've just never had it. Maybe this is the other side of the same coin, but they've just never had anybody invest in them. They've never really had a, a mentor. They're operating out of fear or other bad habits where they feel like they have to be right all the time. And if they're not right, they're going to get fired because they worked for the, for the other type of leader, the machine type of leader, where it's like, you either show up with all the right gear and the right attitude and the right knowledge, or you're out and we'll find somebody who can. And so they, they're they not forthcoming with their challenges, not open about those, uh, about those challenges. And they're very defensive and protective uh, about that. So that's kind of two flavors of what I see with people that are, that are struggling. When it comes to performance coaching and giving people feedback, you know, a lot of people like to do the sandwich, positive, negative, positive you're not that way. How do you continue to build these really strong relationships while also being very direct with your feedback about where they're they're going off course? So a lot of the conversation for me happens when somebody starts letting their team slack or their division slack where it's they're skipping the weekly business review or the monthly business review, the inputs have been missed and they haven't spoken up. Look, this is what was expected. Here's what I'm observing. Either tell me I'm wrong or tell me what you're going to do about it. If you set up those expectations up front, you ask them frequently about the resources. Is there anything else you need to get this done? Is there something blocking you? Is there anything I can remove? It's it's not hard. It's not like I'm I'm being somebody mean. I'm just holding the company line. You gotta be you're accountable for this. This is a little bit different of a change of subject, but one of the things that I've noticed that you do as a leader is you look at the broader picture that's impacting the team and you mentioned international market centers and traveling in january etc one of the first things that you noticed going to market was that your team wasn't eating or they were scrambling to eat and that you worked really hard to solve that what would you say to managers based on that example that they need to look at the broader impact yeah i would say Take your team's well-being um, holistically into mind in everything you do. You know, nothing when it comes to your people's well-being around the workplace, nothing is too small for you to focus on. Now, I couldn't spend all day solving that, but I could raise it to the right people and say, hey, look, this is important enough to me that I'm noticing it. I've got a couple of solutions, but I'm not here to prescribe solutions. I'm here to raise the issue. If you'd like my solutions, great. I'll go solve it on my own if you want as well, but something has to be done. The only answer that's unacceptable is no answer. Um, and so that went a long way. I mean, a lot of people might say, well, what a, what a small thing to, to focus on, but it wasn't like, you know, entire afternoons were less engaged from employees because we were in a position where they couldn't find something to eat and get back to their one o'clock appointments. Um, and it was just the nature of the the travel. It was the nature of the, the situation we were in. But being vigilant and recognizing that, and, and the second part of that, I think, is being willing to listen to your team and ask them questions. So I think some of that awareness came from me asking, like, how are you doing? And if you get the answer, I'm fine. Everything's fine. You, you might not be making an environment that's very welcoming for them to give you the really, really. I had a great manager at Dell who said, I want you to tell me the really, really. And that was kind of his thing. And so I brought that to, to, to teams at the time. And I said like, all right, I want the really, really. Tell me. And inevitably you'll get some, some crazy little things that you're like, okay, come on, really? Are we worried about that? And you got you to gotta answer that in a way that doesn't make them less comfortable telling you pro real problems. But you got to make yourself approachable. And that's some of the feedback I get is that you're very approachable. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, people were, were saying like, it's, it's I, I think it's a small thing, but it's really hard to get anything to eat. And I'm, my afternoon's ruined. I'm like, you know what? No, that's not a small thing. That's a big thing. Let me, let me see what I can do about that. And the fact that you then go do it, like, cause nothing is worse than like listening, hearing, saying, got it. And then not doing anything about it. You destroy trust with your team, but then going and doing it and saying, because you said this, I did, you build this culture of, of your team wanting to do well for you. Yeah. And the scope of your role at the time, like that could have been viewed as very insignificant, but ultimately you're creating those wins with your team. And I think people discount those wins and those wins build that respect that builds that trust. Like, okay, this person is dependable. They actually care about us. It's not just this fluff thing. And um, a lot of people say, oh, it's a C-level. Why do, why do they care about me? Is it Because these are people that are a few levels down from you in the organization. And you're saying, I see you, you matter, despite our, our title differences. Yeah, no, I, it, it's exactly right. And I think, you know, the other thing is, is cause you'll get stuff wrong as a manager and as leader is being willing to like, be very vocal about that. I remember at Uber Eats one time I messed up. I, I think the way we scored leads or the way we set quotas or something, it, it was, it was just wrong. And, you know, a lot of people, your natural inclination is to be like, hide that from anybody that might ever possibly see that power through it, put your head in the sand. It'll all get better next month. But instead I, I called a very quick, you know, all hands. And I said, all right, look, everybody, I messed up and I don't take it lightly. I know it's caused stress on each one of you, but here's what we're doing to fix it. So I'm going to be fixed overnight, but it is going to be fixed the next month's quota. So I want you all to stick with it, you know, do as hard as you can this, this week because of our systems and everything. I can't necessarily go change it today, but I know it's wrong and we're going to make it up to you next month. And then remind people next month when you do it, remember our conversation, I promised I would, here it is, and here's what we're doing about it. And and over the long run, bad things happen, little mistakes happen, and your team starts to tell each other, but it's Justin, we'll get it fixed. Like this won't stand, it'll be fine. Those things add up. And if you can imagine all of the lost productivity from the mistakes that leaders make and don't own up to, and they have to get that trust back over time, that can be the difference in a really tight mar uh, market between you, your company succeeding or going out, right? So they can be small things, but they add up very, very quickly. When you've been a manager of managers for a really long time, and part of the framework for a lot of manager of managers is doing skip levels, but that can feel very, very scary to the people that are reporting to you directly. How have you navigated doing skip levels without it being this fear thing for the people that are reporting to you? So it's the... It's the why behind it. Um, you know, I think if you if you don't explain yourself in skip levels and you just throw something on the calendar, it can be a scary thing. Um, and and this is so funny for me because I hate to think of myself as scary at all. Like I just just I just don't think of it. You know, I'm just I'm me. I think of like how our daughter McKenzie like looks at me is like, I'm not I'm not scary, but but again, because of titles and because of the way people have grown up in companies, more often than not, it it can be, and you gotta recognize that. But for me, it's the why behind it. So I, I explain that, you know, look, naturally and importantly, um, filters happen, you know, to your manager. Things you share with your manager get filtered. They have great intentions. Often they're right. But every once in a while, I just need to check in and understand, you know, what are some things that have uh, that strike you as opportunistic or odd or, you know, it may be, you know, I try to structure these as like, 80% my questions, but 20%, like they're taking the time, their time is valuable too. So 20% is like, ask me anything and I'll be as transparent as possible with you. And, and, and if I can't tell you, I'll tell you, I can't tell you, but otherwise I'll, I'll answer your question, however big or however small it is. And so in my 80%, um, I focus on what are some unique observations, data, customer focus, what are some ideas that you've had? Um, and then you never go back to the manager and you say, you shouldn't have filtered that out. Um, you know, you, you got to go, you know, you support your manager, support the people. There's not gotcha moments here. Um, it's, it's about, you know, developing the manager and kind of, listen, I would have tied this to maybe this opportunity. I totally see why you filtered that out, but you know, here's some things that we're trying to do. And maybe I haven't been as clear as I can in expectations. Cause as much as I preach it, these things sneak up and, and sometimes you come up with a new idea or a new expectation. You don't fully communicate it, communicate it and you need to do better at that. So it's the why behind you're having those skip levels and then the willingness to give them 20% of that time to ask those questions. Um, so I think structure there is is very important. So I know we've talked about a, a bunch of different 
inputs to being a great manager, but what would you say is the number one thing that makes someone manager material? The number one thing is the why behind it. Um, you're doing it for your own pride. You're doing it for your own prestige. You're doing it for money. You're probably going to get led astray. Um, you're probably going to make more mistakes than you need to. If you're doing it because you believe that you have more to offer to people and to the company and to your customers, that's going to drive you to be the best you can. It's going to drive you to listen to your team. It's going to drive you to listen to mentors and seek mentors. It's going to drive you to invest in yourself. So that why is the ultimate reason for somebody being um, a good manager or being manager material. Is there anything else you feel like you want to share with with listeners about being a manager that we haven't covered? Um, I mean, <laughs> I, could, I could share and I would share and I love sharing all day. But what, what I would say is focus on your people. You got to focus on your people. It's okay to be wrong. No one has all the answers. You got to be careful what you're wrong about and wherever possible, invest in, in getting the right answers, getting the right feedback before you make a call. But ultimately you're going to be wrong and, and that's okay. And I would say never stop learning. Never stop seeking new information. You haven't made it. I have not made it. No C-level has made it. Now, many people will tell you, here's how I made it. And, and that's fine. They have everything they need and, and they're happy as can be. But I think the true sign of a leader is you've never made it. Like you, there's always people to lead. There's always people to develop. And you owe it to the team and the company to continue investing in yourself so that you continue growing, you continue impacting that people. It goes back to the why. You're not in this for a title or a dollar amount. You're in this for the people. You're in this so that people can come home and tell their families like, God, I love my job. You're in this for that. You're not in this for the, the titles and money. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. I love people getting to hear your story because I love, I've loved being alongside you for, for part of your career. And it's been a joy to learn about you as a manager and, and pick up things, especially when I was a younger manager and learned a lot from you and actually implemented stuff um, within HR from some of the things that you brought from Amazon. If you want to learn more about Justin's experience and his thoughts on how he got to his level of being a chief revenue officer, check out his YouTube channel. It's at the Justin Jackson. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Welcome to the Manager Material Membership. I'm so glad you're part of this community. Join us and introduce yourself. Meet others to connect, learn, and share with. We're focused on tools and resources for manager development and a community filled with managers just like you facing similar challenges and experiences. Development trainings are dropped each month and action guides help show you the way with common templates for managing your team. Podcasts where we chat with managers who have been in your shoes are released weekly with materials designed just for members to follow along. So join now and let's get going on making you manager material.